1: Hello, kids. This is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison, and every Thursday, we release these special episodes where we look back at Risk content from our earlier years. Now, for a long time now, the first two years' worth of Risk episodes, the ones from October of 2009 through October of 2011, have been behind a paywall. But that's been a little confusing for a lot of Risk fans who are always telling us they didn't even know those first two years worth of episodes existed. So, we thought it would be fun if every other Thursday now, we re-ran an entire episode from the very earliest days. This week, we start at the beginning. The very first episode of Risk ever to appear in the world. Our big debut from October 6, 2009. It's an episode we call... Strange sex.
2: Let me tell you something
3: bad, let me tell you something weird, let me tell you something real. Let me tell you how I roll, let me tell you how I think, let me tell you how I feel. Let me tell you all the things I gotta tell you, cause the things I haven't told you are the things I gotta tell you.
1: Yes, that's the word. This is Risk, the boldest hour of sound around. I'm Kevin Allison, and this is the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. Now, each episode of Risk has a theme. And for this our very first episode, our subject is strange sex. We're diving right in head first. Sexy time gone wrong. Mark Marin is on the show, one of the comedy greats, and many, many more. So let's dig right in. If you've never been to a storytelling show before, you may find yourself at one very soon because this stuff is exploding, particularly in New York and Los Angeles, but probably coming soon to a bar near you. And among the cream of the crop, there's our very first guest here, Ophira Eisenberg. She's always at ofiraeisenberg.com, And she's right here right now with a story we call Jimmy Davis
2: Eyes. I would categorize this under the worst dating experience I had in New York. In Canada, it's very easy to meet people. Um, You basically just sit at a bar and someone buys you a drink and then you date them for seven years. Here, it's like a whole smorgasbord. Everyone tries a little, doesn't like it, moves on. Very difficult, but I, I turned the other way. I became slutty. But I, w- I would always have a one I send up for a very specific time in my life, and it was after a fresh, expensive bikini wax, because all women know that we have a very small window to get our money's worth on that stuff, so we have to move, get out there, and find something quick. And as a woman who's half-Israeli, I have about 20 minutes. So I was out at a bar, and I see this guy. He wasn't bad-looking. He was tall, dark, a little on the lanky side. He looked really He was sort of like clutching onto his beer. And I thought, that guy seems attainable. So I went over and I talked to him. Like, we're talking about our lives. I say to him, tell me about your last girlfriend. He goes, oh, she was 17 years old. I'm like, good for you. That is great. Was she pretty? Nice job. I was like, tell me about your family. He's like, oh, my grandfather was in the S.S. I'm like, yeah, I'm Jewish, perfect, whatever But the hair was growing in, so I was like, let's go And he asked me the one question that I've absolutely been trying to avoid Since I got to Manhattan, which is Would you like to come home with me to Queens? This is the problem with Queens Queens is a big commitment, okay? If you live in Manhattan, you can't get up in the middle of the night in Queens And take the subway home Unless you've got three to seven days to spare But I was like, you know what? We're doing it And there we are in his basement apartment, totally normal, bachelor pad. He stood in front of the closed door to his bedroom, and he turned to me and said, I have something very special to show you. And then he swung open the door, and his room was filled with about two to three hundred Garfields huge ones, stuffed ones, on his dresser, one had a top hat, there was one on his bed that was twice the size of me with Mardi Gras beads on it, and then all over the walls there was little ceramic ones on shelves in poses. But I was in Queens, and I wasn't going anywhere, so I said, okay, um, can you take two of the biggest ones out of your room, (laughs) because that was my idea of having standards. And we proceeded to get naked, and it turned out that the only thing larger than his Garfield collection uh, was his penis. Uh, Let me tell you, this is the first time I've ever dealt with anything of that size, but it was the worst, most unskilled sex of my entire life. And just all around me were these Jim Davis eyes peering. I started reviewing my entire life and making resolutions for the rest of it. I was like, you know what? After this is over tomorrow, I am going to the gym. I'm going to work on a writing packet. But he had no idea what was going on. I mean, the guy is just pumping like a jackrabbit. And all I could think of was, you know what? I'm going to I'm gonna rewrite my J-Day profile. And I'm going to put in it that uh, I'm looking for a guy, and he must not like cats.
1: That's Ophira Eisenberg. Now, maybe next time she's in Queens, she will leave in the middle of the night and then let us know what happened in the three to seven days it takes to get back to Manhattan. Now, in our next story, the sex being had is sex with oneself. Uh, That would be masturbation. The storyteller is Lucas Hazlitt, and we call his story Great
3: Moments in American Cinema. about 1991, 92, uh, there was a, that big craze of purchasing prosumer equipment, and my father bought a huge video camera. And the thing that we did with it is he figured out, well, if you plug the video camera into the TV and you put a tape in there, and then you put a tape in the VCR, you can record, you know, bootleg movies. You could go to Blockbuster, put a Blockbuster movie into the, the, into the video camera and you can bootleg them. So we did that. We did that with Beetlejuice, uh, Nightmare on Elm Street series, all my favorite movies we were bootlegging. One day I was looking for my Beetlejuice tape and I couldn't find it. I couldn't find it where we kept it in the living room. I couldn't find it in my room. I didn't know where it was. So naturally the last place to look is your parents' room. So I went into my parents' room, was looking in the tapes they had there, and I found it. I saw Beetlejuice. But it had been crossed out. There were etching marks on it, which at the time, I didn't know exactly what those meant. I just thought, "Up, oh, something's been taped over. So I thought, "I hmm, won't. I'll take a look what taped over it. So I put the tape in and instead of seeing uh, Michael Keaton grabbing his crotch and kicking a tree, I saw Linda Lovelace performing fellatio on Harry Reams. And I was like, ooh, what, what is this? And I kept watching it because I didn't want to see Beetlejuice anymore. I wanted to see more of what was going on. And that tape was full of things that I'd never seen before. After Deep Throat was over, there was a, an instructional video about uh, how to properly masturbate using a uh, vibrator for women. There were videos of 90s my, South Beach Miami guys who were really you know, bare-chested and having sex with a beautiful Puerto Rican woman uh, that I watched countless times. When I kept watching the video, I noticed that there were like these bumpers in, in you know between each of the uh, the films, where there was an interracial couple having sex, and the production value was not the same as the other movies. And I thought, well, that's odd. I guess they just didn't have the same kind of equipment. But all of these these movies I was masturbating to, f- you know, furiously and furtively trying to be secret about it, um, whenever my parents would go out, I would be like, yes, yeah, it's the time for me to get these tapes. And I made a big deal about it. Um, and, you know, that I did that for a couple of years. Cut to about 1996. Um, my, my mom and dad had been going through some problems. And my mom thought it would be a good idea to work it out in family therapy. So I went with her. And we'd just talk about, uh, you know, my feelings about their problems they were having. How that made me feel. If I was angry or not. I, you know, I was it was perfunctory. I'd go through the routine, blah blah blah. Yeah, I feel this way. I feel that way. And then one day in in the session, the issue of the bootleg tapes came up, and I was very like, oh, wow, that was odd. And my mom got really broken up about it. And I was thinking to myself, what? Well, why are you getting broken up about these tapes? I mean, Beetlejuice, Nightmare on Elm Street. You don't watch these movies, mom. What's the problem? And that's when she revealed that uh, my father and her had made uh... videos of them having sex and she slowly started getting into details of how often they did that and it all just started dawning on me there was a reason why these people looked oddly familiar in these bumpers and why this horrible fake wood brown wallpaper looked familiar and it slowly crept in that oh my god i had been watching my parents having sex and masturbating to them but i was i was deeply horrified by that and luckily My mom just assumed that it had nothing to do with me masturbating to them, but that she was just, you know, her innocent baby had found out something horrible about them. We about to
1: engage in some risky behaviors, y'all. If you wanna go and taunt some geese It's a risk If you pluralize moose as me, It's a risk Write an essay without hitting save It's a risk A fucking mirror when you're having a shade, It's a risk Don't ever go to a cop and call them pigs Unless you scored risky on the Myers-Briggs Now put your hands in the air if you're taking a risk and wave them to the side like a Carlton Fist. You probably don't understand that reference unless you're a big baseball fan. I just took a risk. Uh, as of today, that is my very favorite song. Uh, that's the hilarious Dan Rosen, and I agree with him completely. Don't ever go to a cop and call them pigs unless you scored risky on the Myers-Briggs. And before that, we heard Lucas Hazlitt. You can see him improvising at the People's Improv Theater in New York. And among other things, he is now forever that dude on that podcast who jerked off to his folks. And now I put my own balls on the line. Or I put them somewhere. You'll see. We're going to do something a little different here, though, folks. We're going to replace the original performance of this story told at the First Risk live show in New York with a more recent and I think more fun performance of the story at the 2013 North Carolina Comedy Arts Festival. So that said, without further ado, here's the one I call Ham and Samurai. When I was about 20 years old, I was very new to New York City and very new to hooking up with other gay guys. And there was a bar in the East Village where all the gay guys from NYU would hang out. So it was a very comfortable space. But I was, I had so much social anxiety about that whole, you know, hooking up thing that I remember nursing a beer at this bar one night and saying to a friend of mine, you know, I really want to have sex with someone tonight, but I don't want to have to have a conversation. (laughs) And he said, oh, well, you're in luck because there's a brand new place right across the street. Here's what you do. You just walk right across the street and there's an alleyway there. And it's kind of in the shadows. You kind of got to look for it, but you'll see someone has spray painted the number 84 on a door. Looks like it's locked, but you push it open and you go down one spiral staircase and another one and another one. And when you get to the bottom, there's a little midget dude down there who will take $10 from you, and you walk in, and it's a gay sex club. And you walk in there, and the thing of it is, most of the guys over there are guys who have come from this bar, so it's mostly also NYU dudes, so you don't have to worry so much about running into Santa Claus and assless chaps. (laughs) And I said, well, what am I waiting for? Compared to this here, that is so much more efficient-sounding. So I go right on over, and it's exactly what he said. It's this dark, little, mysterious alleyway. I push the door open. Down the stairs, down the stairs, down the stairs. There's the midget. I give him my 10 bucks, and I go in, and I realize, wait a minute, Kevin. You don't know how to behave in a sex club. What's the etiquette? What are the rules? So I start walking around, and I notice it's all very dark and hazy. This is back when you could still smoke in New York City. It's very hazy, and there's all these snaking hallways. It's kind of like a maze. And there's all these little doors. And men are standing in doorways. They're like closet-sized spaces. And if you see someone you like, you give them a nod, and they nod back, and you go into their little closet-sized space with them. Well. What I didn't realize is, I wasn't really the sexiest guy hanging out at NYU at that time. So a guy who looks like me can spend an awful lot of time walking around and around and around. I got a lot of exercise at 4 o'clock in the morning. But. I was in film school at that time, and the week prior, we had been shown this movie called Seven Samurai by Akira Kurosawa. Now, this is known as one of the, maybe 10 greatest works of the cinema ever. Everyone says there is so much to take away from Seven Samurai. Well, what I took away from it, was that Toshiro Mifune, the main samurai in the movie, spends the latter half of the movie wearing pretty much only what looks like a diaper. And he looked great. So I had Toshiro Mifune on my mind the whole week. Now, as I'm walking around here, in one of these little rooms, behind the shadows in one of these little alcoves, I see a pair of Asian eyes. And I look closer, and he's got a ponytail sticking straight up like a samurai. And I thought, if he doesn't have a machete, I just hit the jackpot. So he gives me a nod, and I give him a nod, and I jumped in the room, and then I thought, whoa, whoa, wait wait, a minute, Kevin, you don't know the rules of engagement. Now what's the safest thing to do in this situation? So as soon as I closed the door, I just blurted out to him, um, why don't we go back to my place? <laughs> So a few minutes later, we're walking up the stairs and up the stairs and up the stairs and into the lamplight, and that's when I see, oh no, this is no samurai. He's a little guy who's really scrawny and has a big nose. He kind of looked like that um, starving rat in Charlotte's Web, (laughs) Templeton, as voiced by Paul Lynn. And he was doing a lot of twitching as if he might be on something. So I thought, oh my gosh, I've got to get out of this situation. But I'm from Ohio. I'm a very polite person. I'm not used to, you know, being disagreeable. So I thought, oh my God, what should I say? Oh, I have an appointment with the nighttime dentist. <laughs> no, instead I just said, uh, what's your name? And he said, Ham. I said, ham? He said, no, ham. I said, ham? He said, no, ham. He was not a chipper guy. I started thinking, Kevin, the last thing you should do is take this guy home. So we get back to my place. <laughs> And it was the strangest thing. I'm thinking, okay, it's time for me to light the candles and turn on the coal (laughs) train. But Ham had different ideas. As soon as the door closed, he went into command mode. He said, stand over there. I said, excuse me? He said, stand over there. Now, my apartment was about 10 feet wide, so over there was not very far away. But I thought, wait a minute. Is this this whole thing they call dominance and submission? This is like role playing maybe, I hope. Or maybe not, because I'm taking acting classes at school and I never, I never last when I'm trying to be like a snowflake falling in the wind. But I'm not used to being disagreeable, so I stood over there. And then he goes on, he says, Take off your pants! I said, Ham, you, could we keep it down a bit? He says, take off your pants. Now I'm thinking, all right, Kevin. Look, you're always thinking you should try new things. <laughs> Maybe tonight's the night you'll have a eureka moment and see the light that is dominance and submission. So I took off my pants. Now, a little bit of time passed. He was definitely thinking, what is the next thing he could order me to do? And then he finally laid it on me. He said, put the shoes on your balls. I said, pardon me? He said, tie the shoes to your balls. He's acting like I'm crazy, like, how did I get to 20 years old without learning how to tie shoes to my balls? But he did have to show me. What he wanted me to do is to take my sneakers and take the laces of them and tie them together as if you might when you're gonna throw them over like a telephone wire, then take this contraption and swirl it around my balls like a propeller and then the shoes would just kinda dangle uh, between my shins. Well, at this point, I'm just so curious as to what the fuck might come next that I did what he said. Here's the deal, though. Converse are not very good for your feet, and I soon learned they're even worse for your balls. Because I wear size 11 and I had the heaviest seals that money could buy. <sighs> but I put them on and immediately I'm very, very pinched. And I said, Okay, Ham, let's get to the next part as soon as possible. He said, All right, hold on. And he takes down his pants and he just starts whacking us like a madman like a super, super world record speed whacker. He's all red in the face and just going nuts over there. And I thought, well, this may be over soon because he is the world's fastest masturbator. (laughs) But no, it just went on and on and on because I think he was on something. So eventually I'm thinking, you know, I'm standing here all bow-legged and I've got nothing to do. So I said, "Uh, ah, Ham, do you think maybe we could move to the bedroom, try something else? And he got mad at me. He said, what's your problem? You look great. (laughs) Maybe, maybe I was a fashion statement ahead of my time. But it just wasn't working for me, so I started to move toward him. And he just kept arguing the same thing with me. It turned into a major argument. He's like, "What, what are you doing? You look great. You've got a real problem here. Finally, I was like, Kevin, it's time to get a little disagreeable here. I decided to take action. So I took his clothes, the ones he had removed, and I threw them out in the hallway. And Ham was so dejected. He went out in the hallway, he gave up. I had totally blown his big shoes on balls plans for the evening. (laughs) And when he sat down and started putting everything back on, he was kind of like a politician that knows he's losing on election day, but just wants to get that point in one more time. He said, What's your problem? You know, you look great. He's like, well, thanks, Ham, but it just wasn't working for me, and I showed him out. Well, I lived in the East Village that day, and the way you furnished your apartment in those days was whatever was out on the street. <laughs> and earlier that day, I had found a full-length mirror, and I had forgotten I'd brought it up. So as I'm letting Ham out, and I turn around, I look across the room, and for the first time, I see myself. I'm wearing nothing but my shoes on my balls. And I thought, you know, Ham might have been completely psychotic, but he did have one thing right. I look great. Thank you very much. Uh, there's, you know, I never do a coda to that story, but there really is now a coda to that story. Um, Risk, we, we did a show once where a guy uh, came up on stage and he told a story about uh, attending an erotic biting workshop. And I came up to him afterwards and I said, now Jefferson, where does one attend an erotic biting workshop? And he said, oh Kevin, I'm going to a kink camp in a couple of weeks, you should come. I said, oh, I know, I've told all sorts of stories on the podcast about crazy sexual adventures, but I don't know anything really about bondage and discipline and, and uh, sadomasochism and all that kind of stuff. And he said, Kevin, take a risk. <laughs> so it was the first time where I felt like the podcast had like walked up to me and dared me. So I went to this kink camp, and that, if you, if you check out the podcast, that's the episode called Kevin Goes to Kink Camp. And damned if it didn't like change my life. I am now up to my eyeballs in bondage and discipline and sadomasochism. So it was just a last month, I went to this sex dungeon in New York City and this very nice gentleman tied me to a wall and blindfolded me. And a little bit into it, I felt some very, very hard pressure down below. I was like, what's going on? And then he finally whispers to me, I just tied my Doc Martens to your balls. I thought, all right, I don't know what kind of chemistry I exude, but apparently I'm very attracted to those who enjoy tying footwear to balls. Also, 20 years later, I've come a long way. Doc (laughs) Martens? I just hope it doesn't go to snow skis or anything. That would be ridiculous.
0: Putting it out there, telling my tale.
1: I'm going to have another problem on my hands if my mom ever hears this podcast, but I'm taking a risk. Uh, Back when I was on the state on MTV, I'd get a phone call from my mother every week, and she'd say, Kevin, some people don't appreciate these jokes about sexual topics. So to all you Catholic mothers from the west side of Cincinnati, Ohio, I'm sorry, but, uh, There is more to come. In fact, we're only halfway through this episode. That was Dion Flynn. You heard doing the theme song there. Uh, We, as you can see, we use a lot of theme songs. If you want to send us one, uh, write for instructions to Kevin at risk-show.com. And so onward. You know, I think most people probably have a pretty good puppy love story. But in Peter Aguero's, there's a kebab. And... Jesus' rookie card. We call this one,
0: the Nimbus. I was 16 years old. Uh, I grew up in South Jersey. Uh, If you're not familiar with South Jersey, it's all farms down there. And I was dating a girl from another town uh, called Maple Shade. We would go do the things that you do when you're that age, you go to the mall. You know, take walks, go get ice cream, um, you know, have sex in, in the, you know, her parents' garage, or in the park, or wherever we could. I um, decided to do something special. Instead of just having sex on the living room floor, we were going to do it in the woods. So I went over to the small woods near my house and I found a little uh, bunch of bushes and trees and uh, I took some, some pink spray paint and painted uh, Peter loves Katie on the on the trees and brought some uh, a couple blankets over there you know just to be ready for the next day. We go for a walk around the side we go into the woods I said I got something special for you. So we go into the little clearing. she saw the graffiti of Peter Love's Katie and, and in her long line of, of uh, NASCAR loving family, like this was the ultimate expression of love when someone does graffiti of your name, you know even if it's on a tree. she, she said, that's so sweet and we just got right down to it. Um, but we're we're on the blankets, and 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 my, the continued movements of my jackrabbit-like sixteen-year-old sexual prowess was shifting her off of the blanket, and I was getting to the magic moment, and I'm starting to see the sparkles in my eyes, and and uh, I look down at her, and her hair's spread out in the in the grass, and and it's just in that moment, it's beautiful. It looks like her head is glowing, and and I then I realize there's something wrong her head isn't glowing the red coming out of it isn't miracles or rainbows or sunlight her head's resting on a nest of deer ticks little red spotted deer ticks her head agitated the deer ticks and they started spreading out from behind her head Like a, like a nimbus, a corona, like you see there's old uh, pictures of Jesus Like on Jesus' rookie card, there's that corona behind his head And you can see this uh, <laughs> behind Katie's head But I was almost done. I couldn't say anything. And she would panic. And that would ruin everything, I guess. Because in that moment, you know, that was the only, this was the only moment of my life. Nothing had ever come before. Nothing was coming after. The whole world didn't exist outside of here. So I was going to finish one way or the other. Whether or not both of us died of Lyme disease, it didn't matter. We were going to finish this coupling in that moment. So I did. And I finished up. And uh, I didn't say a word to her. There was no good time to tell her, so we went back to my mom's house, spent the rest of the time watching uh, TGIF on ABC. And the whole time, I got my arm around the back of her shoulders, and every once in a while, there's a little red tick coming crawling around out of her hair. I remembered you could uh, kill him with a pin, so I excused myself, went upstairs in my mom's uh, bathroom, took the sewing kit out, and got a long straight pin. I came back down, and every time I saw a tick, I would surreptitiously pick it out of her hair, and then pretend I was combing her hair and I would take the pin and I would impale the tick on the pin the whole night for another four hours I had 26 ticks on this on this uh, straight pin like it was some sort of you know kebab. and Katie was never any the wiser to this day, she doesn't... As far as I know, she doesn't know about it. I looked for her on Facebook. I Googled her. I I, I don't know where she is. Uh, I have no idea. I hope she didn't get Lyme disease. But, uh, you know, uh, she maybe she didn't.
1: Maybe she didn't, indeed. Uh, that was Peter Aguero. He is in a band called the BTK Band. Uh, they actually make uh songs that are stories, you can find them on uh, the BTK band on Facebook. Now, next up, we have Mark Marin, who is one of the greats. You see him all the time on Conan O'Brien. Uh, just a very, very smart and very honest comedian. I called him to talk about his story before he did it for the Risk Live show here in New York. And he said, um, well, isn't the riskiest sex sex that you have with someone you actually care about? nevertheless he chose to tell his story about hookers and blow
4: all right so one night i'm coming home from doing comedy my my girlfriend at the time is out of town and it must be like two in the morning and there's some dude out in front of my building in the area goes you want some coke i'm like no i'm good i'm coked. i appreciate it i'm all set with that and then this woman comes out. this uh she in my mind she was a Latino woman she was short and I I think that he was her pimp and she goes you want a date and I'm like well I live here so yeah it's gonna work out so we go into the building and we literally walk up one flight of stairs and she's winded and going "Where? how fucking high up is it I'm like it's just a couple more flights she's like okay So we get into my apartment that I share with this woman. So this whole thing is just like, it's like a a shame palace. There's nothing about what's happening that at all moments isn't like, you know, what the fuck is wrong with you? (laughs) So I never really consummated anything with a hooker before. So we're in this, my apartment, there's stuff around and you know, I've I've got condoms on the dresser and cigarettes and, and stuff and my girlfriend's out of town. And I'm like, well, what happens now? She's like, well, give me $40. So I'm moving up. <laughs> so I give her $40. She goes, why don't you lay down on the bed and take your pants off? So I do. And she starts giving me a head. Mind you, condoms on the counter, none on me. So she's giving me a head, and I'm like, this isn't working out. This is fucking sad. And uh, I go, I'm thinking to myself, maybe if I if she took her breasts out, that'd be good. So I said, okay, will you take your top off? She's like, ten more dollars. So I put the $10 down uh, and uh, she takes her breasts out and, and I, I put my hands on them while she's giving me head and she presses one of my hands into her breast and goes, do you feel a lump in there? <laughs> you know, in between that and the father coming to my mom, I'm like, do I have bad luck with hookers or is this some device? And I'm feeling her breast. And I'm like, wait, yeah, I think there is one in there. And she goes, yeah, I got to go to the doctor. I'm like, this is hot. Can I just say this is hot? This far exceeds my expectations. And somehow or another, I try to focus because I want to finish this thing. And she keeps giving me head. And then the fucking phone rings, and it's my girlfriend. (laughs) So I let the message pick up. And she's like, hi baby, Uh, just calling to check in, see what you were doing and tell you I loved you. And I'm like, I'm I'm with this hooker that probably has cancer. (laughs) Who's blowing me on my girlfriend's bed, listening to her going, okay, I miss you. And I'm like, oh my God, I am in the shame trenches. (laughs) So I finish wasn't much victory in it it was not it was it was something that it was literally like you know like oh god i far exceeded any horrible thing that i had ever done and she gets up and and literally she's like okay uh well you know i I usually work as a computer programmer i think it's a little late for that pretend fake job shit. and she goes can i have these condoms i'm like yeah Yeah, I'm glad they were there. She goes, can I have these cigarettes? Yeah, take everything you want, you know. And then she she left and I immediately went into this panic. I have this syndrome where, you know, I I always think that like I'm gonna win the anti-lottery. Like, you know, I, I, right after she left, I'm like, I'm going to be the only guy that ever got AIDS from a blowjob. So yeah, so that, so then I realized like it was weird. Both of those cases, and this is sort of heavy, I think, in retrospect, because I just figured it out because I brought these stories up in therapy before I came here. (laughs) That I didn't want to have sex with hookers and I don't want to have sex with hookers, but I do like panicking. (laughs) If, If I'm not in some sense of panic or worry or dread, I really don't know what to do with my time. And also, I realized because of that relationship, and it was so long ago, that in retrospect, that if I had things in my mind that made me feel guilty, that she didn't know about, I actually behaved like a pretty decent guy. That guilt-fueled engagement, that you know, being in a state of contrition, that they have no idea what you're about or what it's about, It sort of looks like, wow, he's a really doting boyfriend. We're really just saying, I'm the biggest asshole that ever fucking lived, and she has no idea. And then you're like, can I take it to dinner? (laughs) I think I I don't want any of you to tell her about this. (laughs) And make sure that, oh, it's going to be on a podcast, huh? (laughs) Well, I'll tell you what, um, (laughs) it wasn't you, if you're listening. (laughs) Thank you, good night.
1: was Michael Mullich Howe, a very peculiar man. And before that, of course, Mark Maron. And if there's any legal action that needs to be taken because of that story, remember it should be taken against Mark and not us here at risk. Now our next and last story comes to us from John Flynn. John, when he introduced himself to me, said that he was the other redhead gay uh, in the New York comedy scene and maybe that's why when I heard him say that he was home alone and got stoned and started trolling the Craigslist ads for Just Sex, I thought to myself what a great idea. Well, judge for yourself. Uh, Here's John Flynn with his story Unforgettable.
5: So I was home alone this one Sunday afternoon and I was um getting high by myself, which is always a good sign. And um, I was kind of uh, lonely and uh, a, more than a little bit horny, so um, I decided I would go on Craigslist. And uh, I've been on Craigslist a couple times to meet people. I kind of think of it as like fast food in the fact that like you don't feel good about yourself when you do it, but as sort of get the job done when you need it to. You know, so I'm there, alone in my apartment. I find this ad for this one guy. He sends me his address and I was like, great, I'll leave in a little bit and I should be there about 10 or 15 minutes. And right before I'm about to leave, he emails me and he says, oh, before you go, I should tell you this. I'm a little person. I'm three foot four and I happen to be six foot two. So that means that this guy was roughly half my height. He was just a little bit taller than that. I was not turned on by that and sort of annoyed and and a little angry at that moment because I felt like, you know, this guy, he withheld some pretty vital information about his statistics. And before I could respond back to his last email, he emailed me again and said, I understand if you don't want to come over. And so, you know, my sort of tall person guilt took over and I emailed him back and I said, no, no, it's not a problem at all. Um, I'll see you in a little bit. So I walk over to his place and uh, knock on the door and he answers the door and he was indeed came up to about my waist and he goes oh hey hey y'all come on in and i said oh uh, where are you from he goes oh i'm from georgia and i was like of course and uh as i'm walking in he says oh i'm sorry about the mess i had a show last night and i said oh really a show what do you do and he goes oh i perform with a drag troupe around the city and i thought to myself great i'm about to fuck a midget drag queen from the south Basically, I'm about to make love to a unicorn. That's how obscure this is. (laughs) So we sat down on his sofa, and uh, he takes out his weed and his bowl, and he's packing his bowl, and the whole time his hand is shaking a lot uh, as he's doing it. And he says, oh, oh, don't worry about this. This this just happens sometimes. And I said, oh, no problem. And in my mind, I thought, I guess if someone who was twice my size was about to fuck me, I would be a little shaky too. You know, after a while, we finish smoking. He puts the, the pipe down, and then he just like hops onto my lap, and we start making out. And, you know, like, I'm used to having a guy on my lap, but I'm used to having more guy on my lap. Like, it was very, um, sort of disconcerting that, like, his entire butt fit in my hand. Then, you know, it's sort of time to leave the living room and take it to the bedroom level, so, um... So, you know, we walk into his bedroom, and uh, he has a queen-size bed, uh, but at the foot of the bed he has a set of those doggy stairs that people get for their pets, which he quickly runs and scampers up and then, like, lands on his bed, like, in a very sort of seductive-esque pose. At this point, I'm like, I don't know how this is going to happen. Like, he wants me to fuck him, and I don't know how I can sort of negotiate out of that at this point, but I'm really having a hard time maintaining an erection. And, you know, I think to myself... This is like, I'm about to try and play pool with a piece of rope, like this isn't gonna happen. He's lying on his back and he has his feet up in the air and I sort of maneuver into trying to enter him. You know, his feet are, are come up right, to my, right below my nipples. And then at that moment, his phone rings. He looks over and he goes, oh, I'm sorry. I have to take this really quick. And I was like, oh sure, no problem. And, you know, like, he hops out of the bed, and he grabs the phone, and he goes outside, and he's talking on the phone, and the whole time I'm just sitting there sort of freaking out, like, just trying to figure out a way to get out of it, Pretend I'm, like, all insulted and incensed. Uh, but then he comes back in, and he goes, I'm really sorry, but uh, my wife just called, and uh, she and my son are going to be here in about 10 or 15 minutes. You're going to have to leave. Uh, and, you know, I'm actually very relieved at this point and in a sort of good mood because I feel like, oh, I really dodged this bullet, I didn't have to be an asshole i didn't have to be a jerk but i didn't have to go through with something i didn't want to go through with um you know and then he's walking me to the door and right as i get there he goes I, you know again i'm really sorry you know i was really hoping you know to have a fun memorable afternoon and i said don't you worry about it i, I promise i i will remember this afternoon for a very long time how can i tell you the things
3: i've done I never thought I would tell anyone I took a risk. And now it's done.
1: I gotta tell you. I gotta tell someone. That's it for this, the very first episode of the Risk Podcast. Our next episode is about spiritual breakthroughs and breakdowns. Visit www.risk.com. Dash show.com for details on the live show and information about the musicians and storytellers on this podcast episode. Risk is created and hosted by me, Kevin Allison, produced by Michelle Walson. Our sound engineer is Nick Montalbano. Our story editors, Lee Manansala and Danielle Morgan. Our associate producers are Tim Meehan and Emily Altman. And don't forget to visit us at www.risk-show.com and follow us on Twitter at Risk Show. This is Kevin Allison signing off for Risk. Until next time, remember what the Koreans say about risk. Just because you fear maggots doesn't mean you should give up making soybean sauce.